Let me pray as we come to God's word from 2 Timothy. Gracious God, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Every week when I go to the supermarket, I find a range of products that advertise that they are new and improved. So it might be laundry detergent. So you buy Omo because it says new and improved. I think, oh, I should try that. Next Friday, it says new and improved. I think, is that new and improved since last Friday? Maybe I better buy another one. New and improved recipes and uh, all sorts of foods and things like that. Everyone's looking for something new and improved. Uh, Every product boasts at some time or other that it has a new and improved formula, recipe, uh, economic friendly or eco friendly, whatever it might be. Nobody wants to stand still. We've always got to get the latest new and improved thing. And theology is not much different. Uh, Over the decades and centuries, there are people who advertise they've got the new understanding, the new perspective, the new approach, the new literary approach, the new criticism, or the new orthodoxy, or whatever it might be. That we're always advancing in our knowledge, that we're progressing from what was old and maybe a bit sort of irrelevant now, or redundant, or whatever it might be. And that's the context in which Paul writes to Timothy, this last letter of Paul that we have in the New Testament, uh, late in his life while he's a prisoner in Rome. He writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, uh, a church that Paul had founded some years before. And Timothy's under pressure, the church is under pressure, because there are false teachers around trying to infiltrate the church. And it seems from the language that Paul uses throughout this letter that one of their boasts was that their, their gospel, if you like, their, their teaching, their theology, has made progress, that it's progressive, that it's moved on, advanced, uh, a new and advanced formula, if you like, over the old gospel that Paul had brought to Ephesus some years before. A couple of times in this letter, Paul uses the language of advance or progress back in chapter 2, and earlier in this chapter, in the paragraph before uh, the one that was read for us, Uh, it speaks about they will not make much progress. They will not get very far in this translation. And Paul is mocking their claims to progress. He's saying there is no progress in this new version of the gospel, whatever that may be. And rather, Timothy, instead of being like the false teachers who are grasping at something so-called progressive, new, or improved, you, Timothy, must stand firm. Verse 14, in the middle of today's passage, puts it like this. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have fully, have firmly believed. Continue. Not to progress from it, to move on from it, to find something so-called new and better, but simply to continue, to stand firm in what you have learned in the past. The previous paragraph that was not read from verses 1 to 9 of chapter 3 speaks about those teachers and their followers. And it shows that their so-called 
progressive teaching, their new and advanced or improved formula gospel, is actually leading to immorality. They love themselves, they love money, they love pleasure. They've moved on, but it's probably regressive and not progressive. But you, that's how today's passage begins in this translation, you, however, but the however is very strong. But you, in contrast to those false teachers, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, and so on. Paul uses two arguments in today's passage for Timothy to continue and stand firm in the truth of the gospel that Paul originally had brought to Ephesus and that Timothy is still, thankfully, holding fast to. The first part of the argument is, Timothy, you've seen Paul's example. You've watched me and seen my ministry. And the second part we'll come to is the importance of the Scriptures. So Paul's own example he reminds Timothy of in verses 10 through to verse 13. And Paul is not boasting here. Paul is writing to Timothy who has seen Paul at work. So it's not like Paul is making up something about how good he was. He's saying to Timothy, you've seen my teaching. You've heard what I've taught. That is, the firm faith of the gospel, once for all received, not something new and grasping at novelty or so-called progress, in contrast to the false teachers who've moved away from that. You've seen it. You've seen my conduct, my way of life, my aim of life, my faith, patience, love, and steadfastness. Unlike the false teachers who are manipulating others, that's in the earlier verses of this chapter, Timothy has observed not just what Paul has said, but that his life has matched what he said, that he's backed it up, he's, he's uh, practiced what he's preached, let's say, and especially in the face of hardship, which Paul had faced, now in prison, and Timothy also had faced as well. So he refers to my patience, not just that he's patient and you know, waiting for something to happen, but a, an element of long-suffering under pressure, from other people under pressure from the Roman Empire. He's seen Paul's love for other people. But back in the early part of this chapter, the false teachers, they're lovers of themselves, Paul says. They're lovers of pleasure, lovers of, of money, wealth. But Paul's love is a love of God and a love of God's people. He's seen Paul's steadfastness as well at the end of verse 10 that Paul has endured in ministry. And that example is meant to encourage Timothy to continue, not to move on, progress and find a new gospel that might be easier and more palatable for people to hear, but rather, as Timothy has observed Paul's steadfastness under pressure, then so he should do the same. And he lists some of the places where Paul in particular, with Timothy probably, had uh, suffered uh, difficulty. In Antioch, he was driven out by persecutors. In Iconium, all of these are places in modern-day Turkey, uh, they attempted to stone him. In Lystra, Timothy's own home, where he grew up, it seems, uh, he was all, Paul was almost stoned to death. So Paul's not, this is not an idle boast, oh yes, I had a bit of a problem. His life was severely under threat, 
But Paul has not moved on to another gospel. He's not grasped to find a message that will be more popular, but rather he's held fast to the glorious grace of the gospel in Christ. In the next chapter, Paul will warn Timothy that people will flock to hear all sorts of messages that their itching ears want to hear. But hold fast to what is true. You might think, well, if the gospel of Jesus is so good, why would people look for something else? I think the answer for that is that the gospel does not flatter us. We cannot save ourselves. The gospel does not promise us immediate success, prosperity, comfort, and ease of life. Indeed, it will bring us opposition and persecution at times. But the gospel does promise us a lasting relationship with God for eternity that nothing and no one else can ever bring. And that's accomplished for us by the grace of Jesus dying for us and rising from the dead. So Paul says, but as for you, in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Paul's example is an encouragement to do that. But this verse is also then the transition into the second part of his argument. Why should Timothy continue to stand firm? Because Paul has done it. And he's seen Paul do it time and time again in different places under different pressures. Timothy, hold firm. And Paul writes from prison, where he's probably facing death in Rome, simply for being a Christian. And Paul is not giving up the gospel even there. But secondly, the second reason for continuing is the Scriptures themselves. But as for you, verse 14 says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the Scriptures, the sacred writings. Well, Paul, uh, Timothy had learned them from his mother and his grandmother, they're mentioned in the first chapter of this letter, uh, Eunice and Lois. But it's not just that, oh yes, mum and grandma told me this, therefore I've got to continue in it. Mums and grandmas don't always say the right thing, actually. So it's not just, oh, well, somebody important said this, therefore believe it. But rather that what he's learned is true about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason for continuing it, what was taught from childhood, is not because it was taught from childhood, but because Paul knows that what Timothy was taught from childhood was true. Now, some of you and me, we were taught other things in childhood that were not actually really true. And so we should not continue in them just because we were taught them from childhood. Timothy was taught the Scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. And therefore, because he was taught right truth then, the right gospel then, continue in it. Now, Timothy's an adult now. And again, notice this sense of continue, hold fast, stand firm. It's not like, oh, you were taught the gospel when you were a baby, a child, a boy, but now that you're an adult, move on, progress to a new doctrine, a new gospel. None of that at all. Stand firm and continue in what you were taught then. And still the contrast is, I think, with the false teachers. 
they could not instruct people for salvation back in uh, the early part of chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. They were unable to be good, faithful teachers. But Timothy had been taught by his grandmother and mother faithfully from the Scriptures that salvation is found through the Scriptures, the salvation that is coming to us from Jesus. Therefore, Timothy, hold fast. And now Paul explains why the Scriptures are so important. So he says uh, at the end of verse 15, I, I read to the middle of that verse really, that you've been acquainted with the Scriptures, which are able, powerful literally, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They're powerful to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Not that you're saved by being a wise person, but that real wisdom, the true wisdom, leads us to the fear and faith of the Lord. True wisdom is found in the cross of Christ, which looks so stupid as a failing, a failing event, a futile act, Jesus dying on a cross, and yet indeed is wisdom for our salvation. And because the Scriptures speak of that and testify to us about that salvation in Christ, indeed the Scriptures are powerful to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings that Paul is referring to are what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament, of which this letter is a part, was not yet, in a sense, widely circulated. 2 Timothy, written at the end of Paul's life, probably in the early 60s AD. Maybe, well, Paul had written other letters. Maybe some of Peter's and John's letters had been written by now. The Gospels, maybe not yet. It was really as the next generation was dying out that people then wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But of course, there was the oral tradition of what was there. But when Paul writes sacred writings, he's speaking about the Old Testament, as we call us. So Paul is saying the Old Testament is powerful to make you wise for salvation in Christ. And yet I find... So many Christians today, we are illiterate in the Old Testament. So many of us don't read it because we don't see that it is making us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. I once taught in a Bible seminary where one of my colleagues, another Old Testament teacher, as am I, argued and preached and taught that there is no connection from the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. So every time I had the opportunity in chapel or lectures, I would pick up the passages where Jesus refers back to the Old Testament to make sure the students grasp the point. The Old Testament is powerful to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of the Scripture. It's not there for information. We don't read the books of Samuel or Kings or Proverbs or Isaiah for information, for historical information. We read it to find salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul spells this out a little bit in the verse, uh, verse 16 and 17 that finished today's passage. He speaks firstly of the origin of Scripture. 
all Scripture, he says, is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. That's an evocative idea. Sometimes people, uh, this is translated as inspired. The trouble is with the word inspired is, one, it's a little bit weak. This is breathed out by God. And second, we get confusing between something that's inspired and something that is inspiring. Now, I find Mozart inspiring, but he's not inspired by God, I suspect. God is the final author of Scripture. It's God who speaks the words of Scripture. And he did that in a whole range of different ways. There are times in Scripture where it's clear that the person who is speaking and then writing is, has heard God speak. But there are other times where it seems the writer is doing their own research and maybe unbeknownst to them in a sense, they are writing Scripture as they record the events that happened. It doesn't particularly matter how that has happened. What it's saying is that the Old Testament, and we would say now the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, is breathed by God, and that's why it's powerful to make us wise for salvation. It's not mere human reflection or human sort of exploration or research. It is God speaking to us. But secondly, and very importantly, what is the function of Scripture? It's not merely for our information. Yes, it's to make us wise for salvation in Christ. And Paul explains that or elaborates on that in the second part of verse 16. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Four verbs, uh, really. Well, to uh, teach, to reprove, to correct, and to train in righteousness. The first two deal with thinking, to teach us what is true. And the flip side, if you like, putting it negatively, to reprove us, rebuke us for wrong thinking, for heresy or theological error. These two go together, the positive and the negative, to do with belief and believing what is true. And the second two, to correct and to train in righteousness, are about behavior, about morality, let's say. To correct is the negative, to correct bad behavior, wrong character and wrong ethics. And then the positive, to train in righteousness. So we have the positive and negative about belief, and then the negative and the positive about our behavior. Notice the importance here. To be wise for salvation in Christ is not merely about what is cognitive in our heads. It is about putting that into practice as we trust Jesus by being trained to live righteous lives and thus being corrected for our lack of righteousness in our life as well. All of this is in contrast to the false teachers who in the first part of the chapter were not teaching the truth and were not living righteous lives as well. In contrast to them, Timothy is to continue and stand firm. And the goal of all of this, the origin is God speaking. The purpose is to uh, teach us, to reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. And the purpose, verse 17, that the person of God may be competent, complete, equipped for every good work. Proficient, we might say. That is that Scripture is sufficient for making us the complete person of God. 
It's not that we need the Bible and other things. Other things may be useful, but the Bible is sufficient for us to train us to be complete people of God ultimately. God's Word is sufficient for us. There's nothing more that we need. All that we need to make us wise for salvation in Christ is found in the Scriptures, not elsewhere. And so, Timothy, don't go grasping for some new, improved formula of a gospel because it's not there. If you find something, it won't progress you. It will regress you, as Paul has commented about the other teachers around about. And so, here at Proclaim Church, the great name of Proclaim uh, in our diocese, the area that I'm the bishop for is called Jambana, is an indigenous word, but it means proclamation as well. And uh, why is proclaim so good a name? Because it's the scriptures through which, in which God speaks, and the scriptures that are powerful to make us wise for salvation and are sufficient for that purpose. And so therefore to proclaim, not merely just in words, but as Paul's argument about his own life to Timothy backed up by seeing our way of life, our perseverance and our endurance, even under pressure. But it's also why not just coming to church on a Sunday morning is important, that we're reading our scriptures, including the Old Testament. We're pondering and praying over them. We're doing that with others in a one-to-one to to help us read the scriptures. We're in a Bible study group, perhaps. We're listening and taking seriously the sermons week by week as well so that we overcome error, that we're rebuked for our wrong thinking, but that we're encouraged to put aside wrong ways of life, to grow in righteousness, so that through the power of the Scriptures, we will be proficient, competent, complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for breathing the Scriptures for us, powerfully, still, Uh, the word of life. And we pray that your word in the scriptures will indeed make us proficient to be a complete person of God in Christ. Amen.